digging in the dirt. I'm digging in the dirt. This is Digging in the Dirt with Kevin Gallagher, where Kevin and his guests dig a little deeper into today's issues surrounding the environment, climate change, farming, gardening, and food. Good afternoon. I'm very pleased and privileged to have Paul Hawken here today on Digging in the Dirt. Paul Hawken is a leading voice in the environmental movement. His visionary ideas emphasize changing the relationship between business and the earth. As humanity seeks to rise to the challenge of our time, he has a new book out called Regeneration, Ending the Climate Crisis in One Generation. In it, Hawken provides a refreshingly positive and comprehensive approach to global warming solutions. And I think it's important to note that Jane Goodall, in the foreword of the book, writes, How bizarre that we, the most intellectual of all species, should be destroying our only home. She also says, I have three reasons for hope. The energy and commitment of youth, the resilience of nature, and the human intellect, which is focusing on how we can live in greater harmony with nature. She also writes that the book Regeneration is honest and informative, a rebuttal to doomsayers who believe it is too late, Hawken echoes her sincere beliefs that we have a window of time here, that there are practical solutions, and that we and all our institutions can initiate and implement them in order to restore life and climatic stability on Earth. Let us work to live up to our scientific name, she says, Homo sapiens, the wise ape. Welcome, Paul. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you for all your good work and what you care about. So my first question is, given the success of your book, Drawdown, the success of those ideas that started many, many local Drawdown chapters to do the work all over the world, what made you think that you needed another book on top of that brilliant treatise? What makes Regeneration different? Well, that's a good question. I mean, I actually knew I was going to write Regeneration before I'd finished Drawdown. So I, I always knew that it was the sequel. It wasn't like I had nothing to do and, oh, let's write another book or... First of all, you don't write a book, these kind of books, you do a hell of a lot of research first, you know. Um, And I mean, the origin of Drawdown, let's go back to the origin. It was was really when the third assessment came out in 2001. Uh, And at that time, I noticed that there was no list of solutions. There really wasn't. And um, so I, I asked NGOs and universities that were involved with climate science, you know, two things. One is why were we not naming the goal? And at that time, and to this day, really, it's fighting and you know tackling and mitigating, combating, you know, like. And I mean, nobody wakes up in the morning and says, "I can't wait to mitigate today," you know. And so, <laughs> and, and these are verbs, you know, and goals aren't verbs, you know, like. You know, you know, winning the marathons can be a goal. Running is is can be a goal too. You know, as an action, and so forth. But these sort of war and sports metaphors for climate seem way off base to me. And so I propose using the word drawdown because it's in the literature, buried in the climate literature. But in the context of climate, it means that point in time, you know, when greenhouse gases peak and go down, down on a year-to-year basis. So in other words. The only goal that made sense was to reverse global warming. So why couldn't we name that? Okay, and then let's name it, and then let's see if we can attain it, if that's possible even. And so when I was talking to these NGOs and institutions, 
I said, let's map, measure, and model the existing solutions. Let's find out how many there are, that are substantive, what they cost, will they save money, will they cost money, what impact would they have over the next 30 years, uh, at that time, 50 years, by the way. And the people I talked to, you know, the, some of the big environmental NGOs and, and in, in universities, said, great, it's a great idea. We don't do that, you know, we don't know how to do that, or we don't have the wherewithal to do that, but why don't you do it? And I said, if I knew how to do it, I would, would be asking you, you know, kind of back and forth. But I wanted to include solutions that didn't just reduce because the overwhelming uh, focus of the IPCC at that time until relatively recently was simply emissions reductions. In other words, stop putting so much, you know, greenhouse gas or carbon dioxide, methane, etc., up there in the atmosphere. And I wanted to introduce the idea of sequestration and say, wait a minute, we not only have to stop putting it up there, but we have to bring it back home because it came from here. It's from the earth. And so after 12 years of nobody picking me, picking up on my idea or thinking it was so good, <laughs> I decided to do it myself. And I got a small team of people, you know, Chad Fishman and Crystal Tuzel and Amanda Ravenhill. And, and we, we didn't know how to do it either. I'll be really honest with you. I mean, you know, I mean, we're just like, let's figure this out. We'll make it up as we go along. And um, that's what we did. And we had about 60 to 70 fellows, brought on fellows from all over the world who were researchers. And they did the work on the, on each solution and wrote from a five to 10,000 word treatise on that solution. And we only use peer reviewed science in terms of impact. And we only modeled solutions that were in place and that were scaling. So that was the kind of the criteria and so forth, you know. But as I said, I was already decided to create the sequel to Regeneration. And the difference between the book, the two books is, is fairly straightforward. Drawdown was mechanistic. It was map, measure, and model. And Regeneration is systemic. It's about connect, protect, and act. And, and Drawdown is a what could be done book for sure. And regeneration is how to get a done book that leads to a website that is the world's largest listing and network of climate solutions. And it's called Nexus, but it spells out what everyone can do on all levels of agency, you know, whether they're an individual, that's one level of agency, but, you know, their family, their home, their neighborhood, their community, uh, their city, their village, their town, their company, their school, their classroom, their church, their synagogue, their temple, you know, the state, the province, whatever, all levels of agency have influence and power to implement solutions and to address the challenges we face. And it also, uh, in the website, has the means to connect and align with other people and groups in your region and world and connections to the NGOs that are really kicking ass, if you will, and really getting the job done. It has videos, you know, it has books, it has articles, I mean, links to these things, you know. So you want to get involved with degraded land restoration, come to regeneration.org and to the Nexus thing, and you'll have more ideas, more organizations, more people, etc. than you can shake a stick at. And then you'll be able to get things done. Most people, Kevin, actually don't know what to do. It sounds ridiculous, you know, but actually, I mean, they know how to recycle, you know, I mean, they know, but it's, that's really not one of the major solutions at all. 
but when it comes to the top solutions, they really don't know how to do it, or they hope somebody else does it, or it's out of their hands, or and to this day, when Drawdown was published, there was no comprehensive list of solutions. I mean, if you went to Google, it was like, you know, put a power strip in your home entertainment center and use cold water and, you know, just kind of ridiculous things that I think made people feel disempowered, not empowered. They, they, in, in, unless you had an IQ lower than the room temperature, you knew that these things were were insufficient to the task at hand, that there's this huge, huge inertia momentum of climate change and so forth, and you're putting a, a power strip in your home. And so at this time, however, if you, let's take the same example, degraded land restoration, and you want to get involved, you want to support it, you want to do it, you want to know how to do it where you are, you want to know to do it in different ways, whether it's on a grassland, a farmland, a forest land, uh, degraded chaparral in California that's been burned over, whatever, I dare you to go find it on Google. You can't find out how to do the solutions that we know are are not only germane, but are absolutely necessary in order to reduce emissions and bring uh, 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 carbon dioxide back home and so forth. So that's why um, I did regeneration. So where can you find this clearinghouse of groups and information? You said it's Nexus? It's it, well, it's it's Nexus, but it's Nexus in the website www.regeneration.org, which is not out because the book is not out. So the book comes out on the twenty first of September, and um, when the book is out, when the book's out, then the website will be launched. Right wow. now, we're working furiously to get it done, but yeah, it'll be the world's largest listing and network of climate solutions and how to do them. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's great. That sounds really, really good. You know, I've heard you say that regeneration is the default mode of life. Can you explain that a little bit to everybody? Well, yeah, I feel like, again, when you look at climate, I mean, in the to-do list and all that sort of stuff, it's it's sort of, even the word drawdown for that matter, it's sort of a conceptual thing. You know, it's like drawdown or mitigation is very conceptual, but the language we've been using is about numbers and metrics and jargon and acronyms, you know, none of which inspire people to act, you know. And and as we've learned recently, uh, people don't understand the language that's being used around climate anyway. They still don't understand it. And they're right. They shouldn't have to understand it. So regeneration is innate to being a human being. Our 30 trillion cells are doing it every nanosecond or we wouldn't be having this conversation. That They're regenerating. That's what they're doing. Everything in life regenerates. you know. And I'm not talking about the cycle of life and death, which is part of the regenerative cycle. I'm talking about the very fact that when you stop scraping, poisoning, you know, um, you know, any... Uh, system or ecosystem, you know, burning it or whatever we're doing to destroy these ecosystems and life. The moment you stop the destructive act, it, the, you know, the life starts to regenerate. And so, but regeneration is something we do every day. We take care of ourselves. We take care of our family. We take care of our children. We take care of our garden, the people we love. We take care of others who we feel compassion for, you know, um, and this is regeneration. And this is all about creating the means 
for life. And life creates the conditions for life is what life does. We are life. And so this is an innately human quality uh, as opposed to something that is a concept that we should, you know, do. The word may be new to some people for sure, you know, as a concept, but the fact is that we do it every day regardless. Mm -hmm. And it seems that in this regard, the planet Earth, Mother Nature, whatever you want to call it, will regenerate itself when we leave it alone, or at least maybe steward it in a proper manner. It's regenerating every single nanosecond too, just like everything else. Do we quell it? Do we burn it? Do we poison it? Do we mine it? Do we harm it all the time? Yeah. But it doesn't stop it from doing it. It just keeps doing it and doing it and doing it. And so um, it's not a matter of will it regenerate. It is regenerating. And nature comes back really quickly, mm -hmm. really quickly, um, if we get out of the way. Uh, <laughs> and so regeneration isn't about getting out of the way. It's actually even more positive than that. That's kind of a default act in itself, just getting out of the way and let nature be nature. Um, what we know in, in, in ecosystems is that there are keystone species. And whether they be bees or hummingbirds or, you know, or wolves or beavers or you know, apex predators, or it, the fact is a keystone species is a species whose life, the way they live, creates more life for others. That's a keystone species. And, and there is no reason why human beings can't be keystone species. They were once. If you look really at the Eastern forest, at the, at the Amazon, you look at the places where indigenous people had occupied the land for thousands of years. If you really study it, you realize that it had been transformed by human beings. The, uh, the Milpa Gardens in Mesoamerica, and you know, we think of going in and 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 burning part of the forest as a bad thing, but actually, it was a great thing that indigenous people did. Uh, fire ecology came out of indigeneity and so forth, and we wouldn't have the fires we're having today in the West had we still been following the practices of the indigenous people here in California and all throughout the Western states and so forth. So. We have a history on this planet of people who knew how to live in a place and create more life. When the first settlers came to California and went into the San Joaquin Sacramento Valley, they were amazed at these beautiful, beautiful oaks that looked like a, a park. Somebody described it as Hyde Park. Grass, big, big, big uh, uh, fields of lilies, um, which the... Um, uh, which the first the Native Americans harvested, but they harvested them by they took one bulb and planted two, you know, the one to eat and two to plant, and they kept making bigger and bigger, you know, fields of lilies, and you had to push through the herds of elk, you know, to get you. Know, sometimes mm -hmm. it was so tame. I mean, it was a very very different environment than it is today, you know, and so. We know we can do this. And so regeneration is really about a 180 degree pivot. Every economic sector that we're involved with, that we buy from, that we get a service from, is extractive, whether it means to or not. The fact is it is, it takes life. And if you pull the string on any flower bag on any business, you keep going back to where things come from, the resources, 
uh, you'll find that life is being harmed. And when you harm life, you're degenerating. This is de the degeneration of life. So what regeneration is talking about is like, stop. We know that road doesn't go much further. If we look down the regenerative road, what we see is ocean acidification, loss of speciation, the biodiversity crisis, deforestation, loss of water, you know, uh, I mean, it just goes on and on and on. And so now it's the time for the pivot to regeneration. And it means putting life at the center of every act and decision. And it means step by step, bit by bit, you know, act by act, going the other way and saying, now, how can we do this in a way that creates more life instead of less? And that's what regeneration is about. And, we, you know, when you bring the, when you bring the living world back to life, you bring yourself back to life, you know? So it's not just like, we should do it out there, out there. It's us, we are the living world as well. And so there is a, 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 a beautiful symbiosis, you know, between us, we're an organism, we're a creature, we're a species, <laughs> and all the other species, you know, the plants and trees and the pollinators and the insects, you know, and you know, the, the mycelia, you know, the fungi kingdom, and, you know, obviously the mammalian and reptilian populations and so forth. There's this beautiful, beautiful relationship between all of us that makes life better for all of us, you know, and that is possible. We know how to do that. We know the science, we know the biology. So really regeneration is simply about alignment. Can we get, a, can we get aligned with biological processes? Because we've tried the other one and we have the world we see today where the whole Northern Hemisphere basically in one way or another was on fire in some places, but fires we've never seen before, fires we cannot put out, uh, with winds that are beyond what we've had in the past and landscapes that are so dry that you could spit on them and the fire would start. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you, in your book you say climate change is becoming experiential rather than conceptual. And it, that, that could be said for understanding about nature as well, don't you think? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people, I mean, I was familiar with climate change back in 19, in you know early 70s at Stanford Research, Me too. <laughs> Research Institute. Good, yeah. I mean, we knew everything then that we kind of need to know now, if you will. Not necessarily about solution, but definitely about cause, the physics, the biochemistry. We knew it all then. So this there's nothing new on that sense. The way I look at it right now is we, we saw, it there as, saw, saw it then as a problem, you know, and that we would face. And some people say we're facing it now, but nobody listened to them, okay? And, but they would come soon, you know, to a neighborhood near you. It, the, you know, climate change would be there, global warming, really the proper name. Uh, and it has, and it did. And I think even then, Kevin, we all kind of said, well, anything happen with all this until it's experiential? And I think a lot of us sort of sadly felt like, no, but that probably would be too late. You know, I mean, these were scientists, you know, researchers and, 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 and some great thinkers at SRI. And it's like, yeah, I mean, that's, people don't change until they have to, you know, kind of thing. And looking back in history. And so that was a concern at that time. And I, now it's happening, you know, I mean, it is experiential directly or vicariously. And so you're seeing a rate of change in the world right now that uh, around climate and mobilization and action that we've never seen before. 
So you said in the book, as weather becomes more disruptive and awareness and concern increase, the movement to reverse the climate crisis will likely become the largest movement in the history of mankind. When can we expect this tipping point, Paul? I mean, some of us have been waiting a long time for the public to get aware that there's, like you just said, this has been known for a while. Uh, yeah, good question. I don't know when. I know, but what I say in that passage is the reason it will become the largest movement in the history of humankind is because of weather, not leadership, not a charismatic male vertebrate, not because somebody's coming to save us or because, you know, our corrupt politicians wake up one day and realize, you know, that they've been corrupting themselves as much as anything else. And I just feel that there are tipping points it can be overused that word or that idea mm -hmm. but i do feel that we will achieve a tipping point where anything other than directing one's activity one's business if you will one's um, life to regenerating the earth would be looked as silly asinine well what are you doing what are you thinking what have you been smoking for god's sakes I mean, that we're here together and we recognize it and to stay here together in any shape, manner, or form requires for us to work together and to um, basically regenerate life on Earth. It's the, I mean, you couldn't have a better offer, really. Mm -hmm. We're talking to Paul Hawken. He's the author of Drawdown. Also, his new book coming out later this month called Regeneration, Ending the Climate Crisis in One Generation, From Your Lips to God's Ears. And, uh, you know, in the book, you say that we're going to need the involvement of every sector of society, top to bottom, everything between you know, the, the corporate, the political, and also the social area that we're in. Um, but I'm having a difficult time thinking if we're going to get buy-in from the corporate and political world because they always are, you know, they have lobbyists and they, they like extracting, as you say, and, and, and making profits off the, the planet. And uh, it's really difficult to figure out how that's going to change unless, I guess, we have a lot of public pressure. I get that. Um, I mean, I watch the sustainability, let's call it a movement, whatever, but, you know, permeate the corporate world and with some skepticism frankly because it was like the corporations want to get their social license renewed and they knew that if they didn't have a sustainability program and they weren't speaking to it and we're going to recycle this and do that and so forth that they couldn't recruit well in universities and colleges for staff they knew that uh, they knew that they could lose customers, and so they did it, but they did it as a way of protecting themselves, y you know, their business model, their products, whatever, and they changed as much as they needed to do so in order to protect or renew their social license, okay? I mean, that's how I saw sustainability. I rarely, rarely, rarely met anybody, Ray Anderson being the exception at Interface, but I rarely met a CEO who really got it. Mm -hmm. And he did. He did. I would say today is is very, very different. And and the difference is, and, and I could name the CEOs, those CEOs are at the helm of large very large organizations and supply chains. And what I see in their eyes is, you know, holy smokes. 
I got it. And it, it's like not about the company or the corporation or this. It's like they're a human being. They're, they're a mother or a father or an uncle or a brother or grandfather or whatever. And they get it now. You know, they hear that clock ticking and they see the changes and they're being impacted uh, in their supply chain uh, by disruptions. And so I see a very, very different CEO right now in many cases. I also see a, the opposite, by the way, but that's always been there. So I see them waking up in a way that I've never seen before in the corporate world. And I've been working with businesses for, you know, 40 years, you know, mm -hmm. big corporations, small and, you know, consulting and urging and, you know, <laughs> trying to, you know, inform, you know, and, and guide were asked, you know, and I've never seen anything like we're seeing right now. Um, A little bit of fear, maybe. Well, sure, it's fear. It's it's but it's also reality. You know, it's like and I mean, if you really if, if, if you're ahead of a large organization, your job is to look further out. The person who, you know, is the, on the janitorial staff who cleans up everything in an office or a warehouse or whatever, their job is to take care of the next day. Okay, I'm not trying to put them down in any way. I'm just saying it's a different function. But the higher you go up in an organization, the further out you are required to plan, see, and uh, 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 the future. And the future now is very, very different than the future they expected or maybe even want or wanted. But they accept that they're looking at the end of so many different kind of assumptions about business itself, about people, about what makes sense right now to sell, how you sell it, what's in it, what your sources are, what they do. And they realize that their whole supply chain is part of their agency, part of the network. And when you, you know, you look at deforestation, you look at the marginalization of workers, you look at marginalization of indigenous people, you look at the burning of the Amazon forest, and any company with a large enough supply chain is going to find at least those four and many, many more, you know, the depletion of the oceans, the acidification of the oceans, the, you know, pollution, air pollution, pollution of our land, destruction of uh, soil, the glyphosate, etc. So, I mean, when you start to look at your supply chain, you realize, oh my God, you know, I mean, I am part of the problem. I am killing life on earth, or my company is. And not by intention, not because that's our purpose, not because, you know, we're, we're callous, uncaring people. We just didn't know. Right. And we've always said it's got to pay attention to the bottom line and what's good for the company. Right, but the bottom line is in question. Yeah, it's changing now. I mean, well, can you have a bottom line in a world that you know that is dying in a, in a dying earth? Right, where, where there's droughts and no water for your product, maybe. Yeah, I mean, so they just see the. I think they just see their job in a more holistic, systemic way now. 
Uh, you know, the author, Kim Stanley Robinson, wrote this new book called The Ministry for the Future, and it's yeah. a pretty thoughtful book. He just wrote a, an article for the Financial Times, and in, in it he said, if private capital will not invest in the cost of pulling carbon out of the atmosphere, the cost of survival, then we are cooked. Pulling that much carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere is simply a cost, the cost of survival, but not the highest rate of the return. So private capital will not invest in it, and we allow that judgment to stand so we're cooked <laughs> so he says he thinks money and directing money are key to getting through this crisis successfully and well, what, what are your thoughts about that i have a lot of thoughts about that first of all the idea that we're going to have machines to suck carbon out of the air is just lunacy mm -hmm. and that i'm not saying that those machines don't exist they're very expensive and they don't work very well yet and they may get better and less expensive not at the same time i felt that uh kim stanley robinson's book had more good solutions in it um, than the IPCC has come up in, you know, 36 years or 35 years. So <laughs> it's like, I had took a science fiction book to really um, be innovative, you know, innovative in terms of looking at these systems and how they relate and how they're dysfunctional and so forth. So I give them high marks for that, but pulling it out of the air, first of all, just is the same mindset that caused the problem. And the reason I say that is because a very male dominated, you know, technological climate world has looked at the climate as other if we could, we need to fix it as if there was an it right there. Muscle it. And that othering of climate is the mindset that caused the problem in the first place that there's some place we can stick our shit, you know, uh, whether it's the ocean or rivers or the land or landfill or the atmosphere, you know, and that that the fact that the idea that the biosphere and the sociosphere and the atmosphere are different things they're not they're the same thing and they're just different expressions and aspects of it and so forth so that carbon that he's talking about sucking down you know that's the word that's being used now we're going to suck this carbon out of the air and liquefy it and put it down into geological formations you know where it'll stay hopefully for a long time is lunacy because that carbon is food. That's mm -hmm. food for the living earth. Mm -hmm. We've desiccated, deforested, degraded the earth. And half of the carbon that's up there isn't from the combustion of fossil fuels, it's from the degradation of the earth itself. Okay. And so to, to the idea that you bring it back and bury it is like, wait a minute, there's a cycle here, there's a carbon cycle, and we have to accelerate that and bring it back. And we do that, there's two to three billion hectares of degraded land. I mean, the amount of carbon it needs and can use and could sequester and could hold is staggering. Let me put it to you in another way. So when we were doing the research for regeneration, we were looking at terrestrial systems. That is, you know, farmlands, grasslands, you know, rangelands, forest lands, wetlands, um, <clears throat> uh, coastal mangroves, uh, systems, um, and looking at the science, how much carbon is in these terrestrial systems above and below ground? Below ground meaning within the first, you know, meter or so, not way below. And the data shows 3,300 billion tons of carbon. Okay. Now that's four times as much carbon that's in the atmosphere. Okay. So you can just do the math. If 
we increase the amount of carbon in our terrestrial systems by reforestation, by, by changing our agricultural practices, by changing our grazing practices, by uh, restoring degraded land, reforestation, afforestation, etc. If we increase the carbon by 9%, we will have basically sequestered all the carbon that's been added into the atmosphere by human beings since 1800. Terrific. 9%. So when you look out at your farm or your garden or your, you know, the environment as a whole, you say, can, can we, can we boost this 9%, you know, the number of trees, the, the, the processes, I mean, can we, can we boost soil carbon by 9%? That's a, like falling off a log. And yeah, we can do that. And given the business as usual scenarios of how much carbon is going to be emitted from now until 2050, until there's a net zero, we would have to increase it by 14%, okay? That's just on terrestrial systems alone, okay? Now, if we then look at the emission, the business as usual scenario, which is it is based on the idea Kevin, that we will increase this economy 2.3 times is bigger by 2050, really? Seven times bigger by 2100. To me, that's just a, another type of lunacy or an assumption. It's like, well, wait a minute, really? To increase it two and uh, almost two and a half times bigger? Mm -hmm. Well, what? Bigger, more roads? Is this taller buildings? Is it more buses? Is it more ships? Is it more cruise ships? Is it more... Disney World is, a, I mean, really? You know, I mean, is this what is going to work for the world? Is this what the world wants? And we know we can't do it anyway because it's not, you know, it's so this idea that carbon is the problem is the problem, that thinking. Mm -hmm. Carbon is the symptom, okay, but it's not the problem. Um, it is the metric, but it is not the cure. And so you don't restore land, you don't we go to regenerative agriculture, you don't change your grazing practices, you don't reforest, you don't do these things just because you want to stick carbon back into the land. You put it there because you do it because it increases the amount of water, pollinators, life, productivity, and farm fertility. I mean, the list of benefits from doing these acts of restoration is extraordinary. It benefits everybody and it benefits all of humanity. And so, again, when Kim Stanley Robinson is talking about that, you know, that somehow we, we have to allocate all this capital to have, what, 40 million machines going 24-7 for the next, what, 80, 79 years? You know, I mean, really? I mean, that is such a example of, of men, excuse me, I'll be gender specific, I am one of them, but trying to get technology to fix the problems that technology causes. Yeah, I, I would tend to agree with you. I, I just, I think my question though was more about the financial stuff. Do we have to lean on the financial? I think you even mentioned it in your book, you said that there are too many money centers that are investing in destruction. They're putting trillions of dollars into subsidies and loans and equity directed to the loss of the living world. And do, do we have to change that behavior somehow? And how do we do it? Well, it's, it's really interesting. Um, when I was writing a generation, I hired a decolonization editor, editor, Paul White, University of Michigan, citizen Potawatomi. Because in 
the language sentence structure and the way uh, privileged people, colonists basically write and speak are syntax and ways of expressing themselves that are definitely colonial and settler. They're, they're definitely vestigial things that we don't see, you know, as a white person, we don't see it. And so that's why I hired a decolonization editor. And it's so interesting, on the very first page, I use the editorial we, you know, we face the greatest blah, blah, blah crisis, you know, humanity's ever faced, we, blah, blah, we, 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 just like you said, we need to, okay? And his first comment is, who's we? Mm-hmm. Good point. I don't speak for we. Neither do I. And neither, neither do you. And so, and either does anybody, by the way. And and so, when we look at the banking finance system, we see a system that's completely out of control, in the sense that its sole purpose is to create more money, and so it's it's taking nature, you know, the environment, you know, the resources and so forth, and changing it into cash, you know, and then that cash doesn't know where to go, and f- tries to find someplace else to invest itself. So yes, since the Paris Agreement was signed. In 2016, um, uh, 3.6 trillion dollars has been uh, loaned or invested by J.P. Morgan, Wells Fargo, Bank of America. You know, I mean, it's just stunning. You know how much money has gone to there. Furthermore, governments like our own and others, like Australia, you know, I mean, have subsidized fossil fuel companies to the tune of three point three trillion dollars since the Paris Agreement was signed. So therefore, we put in six point nine trillion dollars into fossil fuels since the Paris Agreement. And what that means, (laughs) what does it mean, is that we put money into a bank to save for the future, arguably, and banks take that money and destroy the future. Okay, so every time you charge something with a credit card that has, you know, Chase or this or that or, you know, Bank of America, Wells Fargo and others, I mean, they're in the book, you know, you are actually part of destroying the future. So with with respect to finance, what you're seeing, though, is an explosion of, it's called DeFi now, but FinTech, there's other words for it, but basically a, a reimagination of banking. PayPal was one of them, actually, you know. Um, but which is to disintermediate these money center banks, you know, from their role and actually from access to capital. And that is in process. We'll see how it works. We'll see. They're changing now. They're a little bit shit-faced, you know, because they've been called out on it, but they're not changing very fast, you know. And so this is something, it's going to depend on how human beings wake up. And if they don't wake up, then they will save for the future and that money will go right back in their face and destroy the future. And And our our politicians are doing the same thing. I mean, they just have the bipartisan infrastructure bill, which is $25 billion subsidy for the fossil fuel industry. Yep. I mean, well, I mean, politicians in most countries are basically corrupt. And there's very, very 
we think of corrupt as very venally corrupt. There's so many different ways of being a corrupt politician. All of Australia, it, government is corrupt. And there's no, that's, you know, I mean, the Republican Party is completely corrupt. Many Democrats are corrupt in terms of who, who is funding them too. We have to be really clear about that. It could be the pharma industry. So in, in, until money and politics are disaggregated, you know, we will not have politicians that represent the will of the people. And we don't in this country, we haven't had it for a long time. And we have it in very few other countries. Look at Canada, you know, this, you know, look at the tar sands going ahead willy nilly. You know, I don't think that has the support of the Canadian people, but it definitely has the support of Ottawa. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We're listening to Paul Hawken. He has a brand new book out called Regeneration, Ending the Climate Crisis in One Generation. It's coming out soon, and there'll be a big resource, too, at uh, the Regeneration website. So it's worth um, checking out when it finally comes out. On, I think it's the 20th, right, you said? At 21st. I mean, the book is, I'll let it speak for itself. You, you can, if you read it, you know, the last eight pages of the book is a wormhole to the website. And yeah. the, my purpose isn't to cut more trees and sell more books. <laughs> uh, uh, no. I saw the book as a narrow, narrow transmitter. If I wasn't doing the book, we wouldn't be having this conversation, for example. That's right. And so it does provide me a way to get onto platforms and podcasts and radio programs and FM and all this sort of stuff and, and talk and to share uh, ideas uh, in ways of thinking. But the purpose of the book, like I said, is more like a neurotransmitter. And the last eight pages called Action and Connection is a wormhole to the website. The website is free and it can go anywhere in the world and it's going to be translated into different languages. Not only is there Nexus, which is the biggest listing, as I said, of climate solutions and networks in the world and how to do them, but then there's climate action systems and climate action systems uh, is a app software really where you can form groups and people learn best in a group and they actually get things done in a group. They like to do things and solve problems as groups. That's who we are. We're social creatures. So climate action systems allows you to do that, you know, to get together a group of people. It can be the PTA, it can be your boys club, it can be a soccer team. It can be a church group, it can be your neighborhood, it can be youth in a high school, whatever it is, and say, and to take something on and, and, and like, we're not sure how to do this. Uh, great. And it has access to Nexus, it has access to other groups, it's a learning module, it's a pod. And as it learns more, uh, it, it can propagate, it, it can be just go anywhere in the world, this thing. So learning is propagated is what life does, it propagates, you know, mitosis, every cell. The dream of every cell is to be two cells, right? So it's creating a kind of a way for people to do that, that actually, uh, that just keeps propagating throughout the world as, and it gets smarter as does life. I mean, when you plant an oak, an acorn, you know, you're planting 20 million years of history and learning in that acorn, right? Mm -hmm. And so it has climate action systems. And then I'm working with Damon Gamow in Australia and John Elkington in London and Clover Hogan from Force for Nature. And we're creating a regenerators network, which is simply a way for people to connect, you know, who are interested, involved, implementing regeneration all over the world. And so it's not, we're not trying to make a social media thing or, you know, Facebook, but just 
giving sort of avenues and networks for people to connect to others in different parts of the world. Might not be a bad idea, though. You know, I'm friendly with the East End Drawdown chapter of Long Island, and they have a whole lot of questions for you, but I only have time for a couple, so I thought I'd ask you one. They said, in your commencement speech recently to young people, you said that this is your century, take it and run. For those of us that are at the grandparent age, we have seen our economy turn from regenerative, like my grandfather's farm, and enjoying seasonal foods to extractive and polluting. Do you see young people being motivated by a new regenerative food culture? Oh, absolutely. I mean, um, Clover Hogan has Force for Nature. She's 24 and she did um, with the American Psychological Association, a survey of young people all around the world. And um, in, in that age, 15 to 25, I think was the bracket they were um, basically interviewing um, and 70% of them uh, have eco-anxiety and stress. Mm -hmm. And while they should, because basically they've been told, look at, you know, this is the greatest challenge any generation's ever faced. And <laughs> it's like, and, and we're leaving soon. You know, I mean, it's just crazy the what we've done, you know, generationally and so forth. But they are responding. And when on Nexus, again, on the website, we talk about Again, organizations, NGOs, you know, that are really kicking butt, they're really getting stuff done. And what you see again and again and again is the vitality of youth. I mean, what we see in the world is youth everywhere taking this into their own hands and doing whatever they can, wherever they are, in whatever means they can mobilize to regenerate life on earth. This is regeneration. This is people being the regenerators, you know, and it's a burgeoning movement. And the way to look at these pioneers is that they are the other type of essential worker the world needs at this time. And what they are doing is rehearsing the future. I've said this to them. They said, well, we're not getting enough, you know, uptake. We're not getting. I said, no, you're rehearsing the future. You are doing and learning what needs to be done. And you're doing it ahead of time before other people realize that. They see what needs to be done on food and ag and so many other areas very, very clearly. Um, and it's only a matter of time before the world pivots to regeneration because there's no other way to secure our future. It is going to happen. You know, of course, it's painful to see, you know, the U.S. What, spent $2.6 on their misguided adventure in Afghanistan, just rife with corruption, hundreds of thousands of deaths, a miserable, miserable, shameful ending. And over one half of that money was spent on weapons. Can you imagine? Yeah. I if, mean, if you invested in those uh, uh, companies that made the weapons, you did pretty well. No, you didn't do well. Actually, you leaving the earth in a very painful way, in my opinion, because you're going to do a life review before you die or afterwards. I agree with you. You're going to wonder what the heck was I thinking? Because that is just so asinine. And that's not why people come to earth. You had a big bank account, but not much else. Yeah, nothing else and the opposite and so forth. So, I mean, the lesson plan from the planet, you know, which is homeschooling us is to align our activity with life itself, you know, with the principles and the miracles of biology, you know. And so, yeah, clear choices need to be made. And I just feel like what I'm seeing in young people is that they're, they are making those choices in an accelerated and way that, you know, frankly, older people I'm not decrying elders. I'm just saying is that they, they are leading. 
So we're talking about regeneration, ending the climate crisis in one generation with Paul Hawken. And, you know, in a nutshell, it's equity, reduce, protect, sequester, influence, and support. Can you briefly mm -hmm. tell us why those not things really. are strong? Not briefly. Really. <laughs> 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 uh, yeah, those are the six ways of looking at, you know, how we approach this. And equity means fairness, you know, kindness to oneself, first of all. Uh, if you're not kind to yourself, you're not going to be kind to others. But fairness to others, uh, fairness to place, fairness to other creatures, you know, and if we're not fair and equitable in what we do, uh, we, will, we will just fail. Uh, four and a half, almost four and a half billion people on earth are poor. And, and then privileged people talking about future existential threat and we should do this and this and this, all correct, you know, to, you know, sort of to address the climate uh, crisis. But majority of humankind is facing current existential threats every single day. It has to do with food, has to do with health, has to do with education, has to do with food security, uh, has to do with their own security, with housing, with warmth, uh, with external threats, you know, in terms of wars, etc. And the thing about the solutions, this in Nexus, this complete listing of solutions is that if there wasn't a climate scientist alive and we were clueless as to extreme weather, these are the things that we should be doing and want to do. And they would touch and help and support and nurture the lives of every single person in the world that is impoverished. And if you want to understand poverty, then just look to see who's benefiting. And then you'll understand why people are poor. They're not poor because they want to be. And poverty does not want to be fixed either. Poverty wants to fix itself. Poor people have as much or more dignity than rich people, frankly. And so when we look at climate solutions, we're looking at a way to regenerate the whole of the world, places, people, cultures, tribes, um, honoring uh, uh, men and women and children, you know, uh, everywhere. And, and not to, as something that, oh, we have to get our suburb all right and this and that. Of course we do. You know, we have to change our lifestyle. We have to change, you know, our impacts and so forth. But we have to see with a broader lens and so forth. And if we are not coming together, then we're not getting the lesson plan. And as I said, we're being homeschooled. And that schooling means we're one system. And that includes all of us as people, as human beings. And if we're not willing to take care of each other, then we're not taking care of ourselves or the future. And we're not going to be proud. And we're not going to be people our ancestors will be proud of. You know, the book has a really handy reader's reference guide in the new books, like, you know, the most frequently asked questions for, uh, for this subject matter. And I, I really liked it a lot. It's a great cheat sheet for trying to explain some things to people as you, as you go along. And also you have at the end there, what, what can be done to reverse warming? And there are three things that we can do about planetary heating. We need to reduce and cease net carbon dioxide emissions over time. We need to protect and restore the enormous stores of carbon contained in our forests, wetlands, grasslands, salt marshes, oceans, and soils. And we need to bring carbon from the atmosphere back to the earth by sequestering carbon dioxide. Yeah, well, that's six things. It's not just three. <laughs> Did I say three? <laughs> yes, yeah. yes, I took it from the book. <laughs> yeah, I know. I wrote it. 
uh, I couldn't have said it better myself, Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, but, so then for somebody listening, how do they participate in that? I mean, is this what regeneration is about then going and, and connecting with other people through the website, through the Nexus to, to find out about this? Let's not generalize. Every person is different. Their age, their 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 education, you know, what they aspire to be, um, in in what they what their their NQ is, their nat nature's quotient, how much they understand the living world, um, not just their IQ, uh, their income, um, all that sort of stuff. Everybody, so you can't generalize, and this is what people should do, okay, or should know. Uh, and that's why I hope the book has many, many, many entry points and portals, and so does the website, you know, so that people can see. It's really about lighting people up, you know. It's not about telling them what to do. We know you don't listen up. We're not saying that at all. Uh, we're saying, you know, sort of like what Kimberly Nicholas, I know she's a wonderful climate scientist, and she wrote a book called Under the Sky We Make. And she basically said, it's warming, it's us, we're sure, it's bad. <laughs> and the fifth fact is that human beings can stop it. And, and that's, the, that's the most important one. You got to get the first four first. You know, if you don't get that, then the fifth one's not going to happen. And uh, so the book is meant to be a way to see the world as, a, as an incredible um, um, uh, collection and offering of possibility as opposed to being sort of inundated and made anxious and stressed and depressed and worried by the probability of what's happening, what's going to go wrong, how it's going to go worse, and when. I'm not denying the science whatsoever. It's really, really great science that's come out of the IPCC and climate scientists as a whole. All I'm saying is that the Wendell Berry quote is, be joyous though you know all the facts. And so, got it, got the facts, it doesn't look good, got that, like, like Kimberly said, it's bad, for sure. But now, how do you want to spend the rest of your life? mulling that over, feeling like you're a victim, like you got the short end of the stick? Or do you want to come to life? As I said, bringing the world to life brings ourself to life. And we may have 60 years left of our life here, we may have 10, and everything in between. Who knows? You never know, you could die tomorrow. So who do you want to be while you are here? And that's what regeneration's about. Um, and the climate movement as a whole in the past has made it, it's been marked by fear and threat and shame and blame, you know, and, and, and I'm not saying that the blame was misplaced. Um, I'm not saying that we should be proud of the past. We are not. But I'm just saying is that those don't motivate us. And what we know is that our beliefs, what we believe, who we believe we are and all that sort of stuff could be religion, this and that, don't really change how we act in the world. And we may think they do, but they don't. It's not how the brain works. What changes our beliefs is our actions. And Andrew Huberman knows it, studied this in Stanford. It's amazing how the brain works. And if we want to change the world, right, you know, and come alive with that act. And so all of regeneration is leading to a vast menu of ways in which you can act what you do, 
how you do it depends on you. Where, what are you curious about? What do you want to know more about? What do you already know a lot about and want to share? Where is it that's going to, I want to work outside. Okay, great. You know, here's what's, you know, I want to do this. I want to work with children. I want to work in farming. I want to work with food. I want to work with animals. I want to work in clothing. I want, whatever it is that you want to do, it's there. And so really this is about the core word, regeneration and what it means to be a human being. We'll leave it right there. Thank you, Paul Hawken, for joining me here on Digging in the Dirt. It's been my pleasure having you. My thank you so much for what you're doing and for listening and asking great questions. (laughs) You're more than welcome. Digging in the dirt. Digging in the dirt. You have been listening to Digging in the Dirt with Kevin Gallagher. To hear past programs anytime you want, visit the podcast section of WPKN.org. And now, all Digging in the Dirt interviews can be found on Spotify.